I'd like to preach to you this morning on the subject of spiritual pride in the church. Uh, My selection of this topic is not arbitrary, but is born of a pastoral burden. Uh, Though I will draw our attention to a number of texts this morning, uh, particularly in 1 Corinthians, uh, I'd like to give the lion's share of our time to application. This sermon will be a little lighter than normal on exposition, a little heavier than normal on application. What I'd like to do uh, this morning for us is to see the sin of spiritual pride illustrated uh, first in the life of one particular New Testament church, and that is the church at Corinth. And then I want us to consider practically, by way of application, some antidotes to spiritual pride. So that's where I am this morning, spiritual pride illustrated in the Corinthian church, and then I want us to consider some antidotes to spiritual pride in our own church. But before we do, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that in truth, as uh, your word is preached this morning, we pray that you yourself would speak to us, and we pray that there would be the conviction in every heart that God himself is speaking by his word. May that reality of what preaching is and ought to be. Uh, the telling out, the speaking, the announcing of the oracles of God. May that be our experience this morning. Uh, Father, we pray that you would bless the words of my mouth, that you would bless the meditations of all our hearts. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's consider, first of all, spiritual pride illustrated in the church at Corinth. Uh, Now, this could only be uh, the most superficial kind of survey. We're going to go to the book, dip into a few passages along the way to illustrate how spiritual pride was taking root in the church at Corinth. But I want to get some biblical material before you to illustrate the ruinous effects of the sin of spiritual pride, particularly in the life of the church. So I'm not thinking primarily about like, pride in your own individual life separate from the church. I know about spiritual pride in the life of a church together, which of course is made up of individuals. Now, the Corinthian church was planted by the Apostle Paul himself. Oh, we have the record of the church's beginning in Acts 18. Paul labored there for a year and a half among that congregation to establish that church. Uh, He writes his first letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus, we think just a few years after he first planted the church. Plants the church, there for 18 months. It goes on, and we think it's just a few years later from Ephesus that Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians. We learn from the letter of 1 Corinthians that Paul is writing in response to a communication he had received from the Corinthians themselves. And what we appreciate very quickly Uh, almost from the very beginning of the book, uh, is uh, that the church has become deeply dysfunctional and has developed a number of significant weaknesses and blind spots as a church. For our purposes this morning, I want us to appreciate that one of the leading sins uh, that is active in the church is a kind of spiritual pride and conceit which lay behind many of the church's other weaknesses and failings. I want us to see how spiritual pride is at the root of so much of what went wrong in the Corinthian church. I want to briefly identify five ways that spiritual pride manifested itself in the church at Corinth. Number one, spiritual pride manifested itself, we learn first, in their attitude toward Christian leaders. In their attitude toward Christian leaders. From the very beginning of the epistle, we learn that factions were emerging in the church that identified with particular Christian leaders over and above others. So look if you would at 1 Corinthians 1, good to have your Bibles open to that book this morning. Further than this, 1, verses 10 through 13, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, 
and that you be united in the same mind, the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, apparently what you had in the church were rival factions identifying themselves with particular leaders. And apparently they were doing this in order to claim for themselves some kind of status in the church. Uh, perhaps by virtue of who baptized them. You know, oh, well, you know, I was actually baptized by Paul. Uh, you, my brother, were baptized only by the associate pastor. I got the senior man. I got the evangelist, the church planter. Uh, perhaps they were boasting about who first taught them the gospel. Well, I deserve to teach the class because, after all, I learned the gospel from Cephas. He's the one who taught me. Otherwise, they were boasting on who was discipling them. Maybe they thought they had a favored position with one leader over another. Uh, this concern over uh, identifying with these leaders and viewing it in a carnal way is identified, renewed again in chapter 3, where Paul directly calls such thinking carnal and worldly. And Paul expressly identifies this pattern among the Corinthians as a reflection of spiritual pride. For he says, if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21, so let no one boast in men. It's not boasting about who your favored Christian leader is. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. This is the first way spiritual pride is manifest in the Corinthians' attitude toward Christian leaders. Second way. Spiritual pride was manifest. Secondly, it was manifest in their claims to possess superior knowledge and wisdom over others. In their claims to possess superior knowledge and wisdom over others. Uh, Paul actually begins the letter with a long discourse on the nature of true wisdom that runs all the way into chapter 3. Apparently, some among the Corinthians were thinking of wisdom and knowledge in a worldly way, in a way that diminished the power of the gospel and promoted pride in them. Paul contrasts the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God, and he chides the Corinthians for conceiving of wisdom in a worldly way. As some in the church were boasting in their apparent wisdom, what they knew over and above their brothers and sisters. And Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, if you look at that text, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. You think you're so wise? You think you know so much? Well, those who think they're wise according to the world become fools. A little later on, Paul urges them to remember that they are not superior to others, regardless of what they think they've learned or what Christian teachers they follow. They have no grounds for boasting, he says. Any true wisdom or knowledge they may possess or any spiritual attainments are only a gift from God anyway. And therefore, they should not look down their noses at others. First Corinthians 4, if you look at that passage, verse 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You think you know so much? So much greater than you? Even if you know so much, what do you have that you did not receive? Why are you boasting as if you did not receive it? Third way we see spiritual pride manifest in the church at Corinth. Uh, spiritual pride manifested itself third 
in their toleration of sin in their midst. Their toleration of sin in their midst. Look, if you would, at 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. We think uh, either uh, this is the man's uh, stepmom and he's having his stepmom or his father's died and now he's entering into relations with his, wife, with his mother. Verse 3 says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Exactly what the nature of this boasting was is not immediately clear, but many have suggested the essence of their boasting was that they took pride as a church in how tolerant they were of sin. See how forbearing we are, how long-suffering, how merciful. We even have a man in our midst who is sleeping with his father's wife. We don't put him out. Aren't we tolerant? Aren't we merciful? We welcome all into our membership. We do not judge. See, aren't we nice and spiritual? They were boasting that this was going on in their church. In this, Paul saw in them a kind of pride, a kind of arrogance, a kind of sinful boasting. And he calls them out for it. He says, purge the evil man from your midst. Uh, This is just an aside. This has nothing to do with my sermon. Uh, But I just will say there are churches today who will make this very same boast. Uh, that it's somehow a credit to a church to exercise extreme toleration of gross and immoral sin in their midst and to not call people to account and to not seek to make sure the church, the membership of the church is pure and is walking in godliness. And there are some even in settings like ours among churches like us uh, out of a contorted understanding of the gospel think to deal with sin in the way Paul is calling us to deal with sin in the church uh, is, is somehow wrong. Uh, that it's some as a failure of love to deal with sin in the church in this way. Brothers and sisters, Paul is very clear, 1 Corinthians 5, and we should not withdraw from this passage. It would be arrogance and pride uh, to tolerate such sin in the midst of the church body. All right, number four, for the way spiritual pride manifested itself, in their attitude regarding Christian freedom. In their attitude regarding Christian freedom. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would please turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, look with me at verse 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. I preached on this text about a month ago. Uh, In that sermon, I sought to show how some in the Corinthian church rightly concluded that there was nothing wrong doctrinally uh, with eating meat sacrificed to idols, and therefore felt at liberty to eat such such meat. However, those who had this knowledge and this freedom were using it to present a stumbling block to their brethren who who did not share their knowledge and their freedom, and thus were being led into sin. And Paul again sees in this the traces of spiritual pride. He says, this knowledge you have is puffing you up. He said, spiritual pride manifested itself in an unloving and cavalier attitude about Christian freedom, and it was hurting the church. 
Uh, People were becoming prideful about what their doctrinal knowledge allowed them to do and what it allowed them to enjoy, and it was injurious to the church's health and unity. All right, fifth and final way. Spiritual pride may have manifested itself, fifth, in their attitude towards spiritual gifts. I say it may have manifested itself. I think we see traces that spiritual pride is present in their attitude towards spiritual gifts. Won't go into too much detail here. Uh, as the issue of the Corinthians' attitude towards spiritual gifts is quite involved. But there are clear indications in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 uh, that the church possessed an inadequate and dysfunctional view of spiritual gifts. That much is clear. Uh, We also get indications that in the Corinthian context, spiritual gifts were not being viewed as gifts given by God for the building up of the body, and perhaps more as a platform for personal performance and a way of achieving some kind of status in the church. Well, they perhaps viewed the gifts in a somewhat carnal way, as a way of exalting themselves and asserting their own self-importance. The matter of spiritual gifts may have become another occasion for spiritual pride to manifest itself in the church. Well, so much for this brief survey of the Corinthian church. What I think we could clearly see is that spiritual pride was at work in numerous ways in this congregation. Well, this has just been a, a brief survey. Uh, to illustrate what spiritual pride looked like in one particular New Testament church. Spiritual pride certainly manifested itself in other ways in other churches in the New Testament. I've simply illustrated how it looked in one particular church. However, more than simply illustrating how it came to expression in the Corinthian church, I am more interested in thinking with you about how spiritual pride might manifest itself in a church like ours. I know it's certainly possible we may as a church be tempted toward pride in precisely the same ways as the Corinthians. Uh, So we might become prideful with respect to different leaders, either in this church or in the wider Christian world. Uh, We might become arrogant with respect to sin in our midst. We might become prideful with regard to spiritual gifts. Spiritual pride may come to expression in other ways, ways perhaps more characteristic of our particular age and our particular context, and maybe in ways more characteristic of our church tradition, or even just a peculiar mix of personalities in this particular church. Spiritual pride can grow up anywhere in a church. And so I ask you, particularly the members of Emmanuel Church, but all of us, just to reflect for a few moments on this question. How do you think spiritual pride might manifest itself in a church like ours? If a church like ours began to be gripped by spiritual pride, what might it look like? I've been thinking about this question for several weeks, actually. And it's occurred to me the number of ways spiritual pride might manifest itself in a church like ours are really endless. Let me just list a few that I think we may be particularly vulnerable to. First, we might be tempted to take pride in our doctrinal knowledge. Uh, Pride in our doctrinal knowledge. We are, after all, a confessional church. Uh, We don't have a flimsy kind of five core values page on the website. We have the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 and the Abstract of Principles and a host of supplemental documents like the Danvers Statement on Biblical Man and Womanhood and the Chicago Statement on Biblical Man. We've got our doctrine down. And uh, we are very discerning with respect to doctrine. We can tell you all the ways in which other people are doing it wrong. 
uh, we got our church history down, and we become very discerning with respect to the truth. We can be tempted toward pride in our doctrinal knowledge. We can be tempted toward pride in our numbers, our attendance, our membership, our budget. And now, some of you visiting with us, uh, you might kind of chuckle when I say that, uh, because we're not like a huge church. Uh, you could go down the road to Two Cities Church or to Calvary Baptist Church or to Mercy Hill in Greensboro. There are plenty of churches much bigger than us. Um, but for those who have been here for any length of time, uh, you, some of you could remember it was only six years ago that we were about a, a dozen to two dozen people huddled up here in these first few rows. And now the church feels like a mega church to us who were there at the beginning. And we may think, well, look at us. Full sanctuary. I keep adding members. More members than we lose. We've had a budget surplus, what, five years in a row? Look at us. We can take pride in our numbers. We can take pride in our well-ordered church life. After all, we figured out our polity. We've tried to base it on the Bible. We have a carefully worked out constitution with the bylaws. We make sure the elders are in their proper place and the deacons are in their proper place. We have a very thorough membership class. We really take membership seriously, don't you know? And we've kind of figured out the polity of all of this, and it's, everything's in its place. We've got a well-ordered polity, well-ordered church structure. We take pride in our leaders, our pride in leaders associated with our movement, and we could boast in our leaders, either in this church or leaders that broadly reflect our theology who are quoted here and uh, uh, commended from this pulpit or in the bookstore. How about this one? This, this term was a new term to me. I learned it from uh, our brother Nathan Streer pretty early in the life of our church here. He called it OPC syndrome. Nathan, you remember that? OPC syndrome? Yeah, that's not, don't think, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, okay? That's a great denomination. We love our brothers and sisters in the OPC. Nothing against them. Uh, OPC stands for Only Perfect Church Syndrome. Oh, there's, there's no church like our church. Uh, we've really figured it out. Oh, I, I've been to churches, but oh, this, this church, we finally found the green pastures and the still waters. Uh, many churches fall prey to Only Perfect Church Syndrome, and it leads them to become tribal. It leads them to become divisive. It leads them to look down their noses at other Christians. It leads them into an ungodly and unholy sort of separationism and isolationism, a kind of spiritual pride that severs you from the larger body of Christ. It gives you the idea that you have nothing to learn from anybody else. It inflates the church with pride, and it prepares them for a great and awesome fall. Beware of only perfect church syndrome. Uh, friends, we could just have the kind of pride that presumes on the blessing of God. God, God is blessed us, and he always will. We just got to keep doing us. And uh, God will just keep pouring out his blessing. And we could be provoked to pride in this. These are all ways spiritual pride can come to expression in our church, and I could spin off a hundred more. What we must recognize is that spiritual pride can, in fact, take root here. It can, in fact, the water supply in this church, the water supply that we're all drinking from. It can, in fact, the bloodstream. And friends, it could ruin everything. It could ruin our church. It can swallow up our leaders. It can produce factions and rivalries among the members. It can isolate us from the wider body of Christ. It can cause us to become tribal and divisive. It can cause us to become arrogant and boastful and headstrong. It can cause us to erect false idols and to trust in false saviors. Worst of all, it can cause us to grieve God's Spirit. 
and it can cause him to retreat from us and to remove his blessing from us. This is the very threat the Lord gives to the Ephesian church in Revelation 2. He warns them. Spiritual pride there in the church. He's going to remove the candlestick. I don't know exactly what that entails, but it's something God supplies that he will take away. He will withdraw from his disobedient people. Friends, I don't think it's presumptuous for us to acknowledge that we as a church have experienced so much of the unusual blessing of God. But it will often happen that churches that experience periods of special blessing will come to see that blessing as something they earned or something they achieved or something to which they are entitled. They will come to see the blessings they experience as the products of their faithfulness, their know-how, their ingenuity, and their giftedness. And what once was so bright with God's grace will become shrouded in human pride. And I don't want that to happen to us. So I'm reading this sermon in part to warn us against this danger and to help us consider how we can resist it. So in the time that remains, I'd like to present by way of application seven antidotes against spiritual pride in the church. And we'll go through these quickly. Be not afraid. Uh, we'll spend most of our time on the first two. Seven antidotes to spiritual pride. These are really just a number of exhortations, brothers and sisters. And I just urge you to take these exhortations to heart and to consider how we may apply them here in our church. Antidotes to spiritual pride in the church, in our church. If we wish to fight spiritual pride, number one, we must be a church centered on and shaped by the gospel. If we wish to fight spiritual pride, number one, we must be a church centered on and shaped by the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know what the gospel is. We talk about it all the time. We sing about it all the time. We pray about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. Um, if you don't know what the gospel is, you need to listen in in a special way here. The gospel simply is the good news about what God has done in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through His incarnation, death, and resurrection, to make a way of salvation for sinners like you and me who come to Him in repentance and faith. The gospel is the good news about what God has done in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His incarnation, in His death, in His resurrection, to make a way of salvation for sinners like you and me who come to Him in repentance and faith. This message is central to our faith. It is the bedrock of our lives. And this message, the gospel, is meant to shape everything about us. Our lives, our families, our church, the way we view the world, everything. The good news of mercy, forgiveness, and salvation found in the blood of Jesus Christ for guilty, vile, and helpless sinners like us must come to shape us at the heart level. It must come to define not only the doctrine of this church, but the entire culture and ethos of this church. See, churches can have the gospel in their doctrine, in their statements of faith, but it can fail to permeate the air, fails to take hold and create a gospel culture. We don't want just gospel doctrine, we want a gospel culture, a gospel ethos in the life of the church. And if the gospel comes to take root at the level of our culture as a church, what will be the result? Well, friends, far from being proud about our achievements, we will have large eyes to our own sins and our own unworthiness and our own shortcomings and inadequacies. And we will be moved to a humble and contrite posture before the Lord, looking to Him in humble dependence and expectant faith. 
we will be overwhelmed and amazed and excited by the abundant grace of God shown to us in Christ. His mercy and His forgiveness will flood our hearts and will transform and reshape our minds in glorious ways. We will not see ourselves as magnificent and impressive, but rather as wretched and sinful. And we will see God as the fountain of all mercy and all blessing and all kindness and all compassion. We will view ourselves not as spiritual hotshots, but as redeemed sinners, unworthy of the manifold blessings and gifts we receive. We will see ourselves as being redeemed from slavery, adopted out of orphanhood, justified and pardoned of all our transgressions and sins, all by God's grace, not our merits and what we do. And we will be eager to love and serve and worship our Savior, who has transported us from darkness to light and from death to life and from eternal misery in hell to eternal life forever in heaven. If you want to choke out pride at the root, immerse yourself in the biblical gospel, the good news about what God has done in Christ. If we would be inoculated as a church against spiritual pride, the gospel needs to permeate everything about this church's culture. The gospel should be the keynote in all the preaching and teaching. It should fill our Sunday school classrooms. It should fill our songs and our readings and our prayers. Uh, The communion table where the gospel is most compellingly illustrated should be especially precious to us. The gospel should be on our lips in our conversations with one another. And the effect of this kind of gospel culture in our church will not be that we become proud toward one another in our relationships together. Rather, we will sympathize with our fellow sinners in the church, and we will look upon one another with grace and mercy, grace and mercy that we learned by the gospel. And we will be patient, and we will be long-suffering with one another with patience and long-suffering that we learned by the gospel. And we will be quick to repent of our sins and quick to forgive one another with repentance and forgiveness that we learned by the gospel. And we will sympathize with sinners who are lost outside of Christ. And we will be full of zeal to see them saved with the sympathy and zeal we learned by the gospel. Friends, to keep pride out of the church, we need gospel sermons, gospel songs, gospel prayers, gospel meditations at communion, gospel Sunday schools, gospel small groups, gospel prayer meetings, gospel testimonies, gospel conversations, gospel friendships, gospel partnerships, gospel books. The gospel must permeate and pervade everything about this church. And if the gospel permeates and pervades this church, spiritual pride will have its downfall. Spiritual pride ends where the gospel story begins. If we would fight pride in the church, we must be a church centered on and shaped by the gospel. Number two, second antidote. We must always pursue a posture of humility before the Lord. We must always pursue a posture of humility before the Lord, particularly with respect to our own sins weaknesses, and blind spots. We must always pursue a posture of humility before the Lord, particularly with respect to our own sins, weaknesses, and blind spots. Brothers and sisters, if we're to resist spiritual pride, we must always pursue a posture of humility before God, a posture of lowliness, of dependence, of need. And in that posture, we will be made to recognize, I am not as impressive as I think I am. We as a church are not as impressive as we may think we are. We are covered 
in sins and weaknesses and failures and inadequacies and blind spots. They are known to God. And friends, we should want them to be known to us so that we could see them, be humbled by them, and then repent of them and see to turn away from them. If a church is to have a posture of humility before God, the members must have an abiding sense of their own weaknesses and inadequacies. I often talk to people in the membership process. A standard question we ask in the membership interview is, why do you want to join this church? And not always, not even often, but every now and again, uh, someone will say something like, well, we finally found it. We finally found a church. Hard to find something wrong with this church. Uh, And I always say the same thing. I say, just look a little more closely. You will find it. Plenty wrong with this church. In all seriousness, I'll, I'll tell folks, if you're here for even just a few years, I assure you, the members of this congregation will disappoint you. And the leaders of this church, I know, are going to disappoint you. Every church is an imperfect church. Every church is, to some degree, a dysfunctional church. Uh, Friends, this is true of marriage. As I counsel younger couples who are getting prepared for marriage, I'll tell them uh, there is going to come a point, it's just necessary, it happens in every marriage, where there will be some modicum of disillusionment with your spouse. I thought marriage was going to be more, better, Almost no one enters into marriage with realistic expectations, right? There's a kind of disillusionment we experience sometimes in other people because we're all sinners. We're all disillusioning. We get disillusioned with ourselves. Well, there's a kind of disillusionment that will take place in the church. Every church is imperfect, dysfunctional, weak, possessed with certain sins and blind spots. Brothers and sisters, our theology teaches us, doesn't it, to expect sin and weakness. If you think this church doesn't have sins and weaknesses, you have not comprehended the Reformed theology we've been trying to teach you. Friends, of all churches and denominations, we who teach the doctrine of total depravity and the unconditional grace of God should be ready to acknowledge our weaknesses as a church and our shortcomings and our need for growth and sanctification and continual cleansing and renewal. We have not arrived. We need to be realistic about the blind spots that we surely have. You say, We don't have any blind spots. I don't see any blind spots. Well, you wouldn't see them, would you? They're blind spots. You're not aware that they're there. The point is we should be more aware of our sin and failure than we often are, and it should lead us, friends, to assume a posture of humility and contrition before God, not proud boasting in who we are and what our achievements are. Our default posture should be one of need, of weakness, of frailty in the presence of God. God, show me. Show us. Help us as a church. Open our eyes. Give us insight. Give us the grace with which to repent and to restart and to grow as a church. Help us as a church be more aware of our sin and our need and more aware of your grace and forgiveness and your readiness to help us. If we would resist spiritual pride in the church, let us together pursue a posture of humility before the Lord. Number three, antidote number three. We'll move more quickly here. Number three, three, we must never stop being surprised by and thankful for God's unmerited blessings. We must never stop being surprised by and thankful for God's unmerited blessings. My friend, do you find the goodness of God toward us surprising? 
And by that, I'm not asking, are you surprised that God would be good in his being, that he possesses the attribute of goodness? No, I mean that he would be good toward us. Sinful mess that we are. Do you find his blessings unremarkable and frankly a little humdrum? Or are you amazed at God's blessings in this church? By God's kind providences. Do you ever stop and say, look what God has done? This is the work of the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Look what God has done in mercy and kindness toward a mess of undeserving people like us. Whereas one sign that pride is already having its work within us is if we begin to regard God's mercies and blessings as commonplace. But the humble believer never ceases to be amazed at God's manifold kindnesses. And the humble church never ceases to be surprised and impressed by the mercy and compassion of God either. I've been reading the Psalms a lot in preparation for uh, my sabbatical. I'll be studying the Psalms. And I was reading one writer who was drawing out this point, uh, how impressed he was by how often the psalmist seems so surprised at how wonderful God is and how good he is. Like, like just gloriously surprised. Like he's even better than we had thought. He's even kinder than we had thought. He's even more good and we had thought, oh, how wonderful are your works, O Lord, studied by all who fear you. Uh, how many are your works toward those who believe? I cannot number them all. And this sort of humble surprise and amazement at the unmerited blessings of God leads them to thankfulness, uh, to gratitude, looking up to God. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in us. Brothers and sisters, let's never stop being thankful for every last blessing God bestows on this church. And knowing that we don't merit any of it. And it could be so different. Every gathering where God comes to meet with us, we should be thankful for. Every sinner saved. Every testimony of God's grace. Every backslidden person recovered. Every marriage that is restored. Every saint that dies well. Every child that is born, every last sinner that is brought under the preaching of the gospel, every outcast, outsider, and loner who comes into this church and finds a home, every church that is planted and supported, every missionary that we have a hand in supporting, every last one brought under the preaching of the gospel, every night, like some of the nights that we enjoyed this year together, like the night we had with our sister Jamaica, as she was on the borders of paradise with Christ, her body riddled with cancer, testifying so sweetly and beautifully of the grace of God at work in her. It occurred to me, the songs we sung today, I had asked Jamaica, what do you want to sing in the service? Her last service, she was ever going to be with the family of God on earth. She said, I want to sing His mercy is more and Christ the sure and steady anchor, the songs we sung today. And how we sang together, how we prayed together and found comfort in one another's arms and one another's hearts. Friends, nights like that are precious. And it's like we had with the Christmas concert where it just seemed in a special way God was ministering to us and uniting our hearts together in song and in worship to Him. These are gifts from God's hand, and we should never see these things as commonplace. We should never take them for granted. God is kind to give us these kinds of experiences as a church and to draw us into deeper fellowship with one another and deeper fellowship with God as a congregation. Friends, do you think God owes us these blessings? Do you think God is bound to show us all these special kindnesses. Friends, pride is crowded out by thankfulness. 
Let's never stop being surprised by and thankful for God's unmerited blessings. Antidote number four. Antidote number four. We must never presume on God's ongoing blessing, but humbly seek him for it. We must never presume on God's ongoing blessing, but humbly seek him for it. We must recognize that God's special blessing on a church is not guaranteed into the future. You know that, right? Because things are sweet and good and rich now doesn't mean they will be a generation from now. Some of you know this from bitter experience. You're perhaps in a church situation that was so wonderful and so lovely and so bright and so God-honoring until it was not. And some of you would be well qualified to warn us about the things that can go wrong. But this happens. Sometimes you will find yourself in a healthy church and you think, this is just how it goes. You begin to think this is the result of simple inputs and outputs. You get the right confession of faith in place, right church order, install the right pastors, get the schedule and the programs all worked out just right, and out comes a healthy, happy church experience forever and always. Friends, never make the mistake of thinking you can reverse engineer God's blessing. Don't presume on God's kindness. Instead, continually entreat him for it. Do like the saints of old and raise up your Ebenezer's, your stones of remembrance, and say, thus far the Lord has been with us. And God, how we thank you that you have been with us. And how we beg you, please continue with us into a long and fruitful future. Go with us into the future. Do not leave us. Continue to supply what has been good. And God, by your grace, help us to mortify what has been bad. Please provide for us into the future. Antidote number five. We must seek to guard and maintain everything that is good in this church, recognizing it may be lost. We must seek to guard and maintain everything that is good in this church, recognizing it may be lost. You've heard me say this before. Churches don't drift toward faithfulness. They don't drift toward faithfulness. You're standing still. Through the winds of the waves, you drift. You don't drift toward faithfulness. You don't drift toward holiness. You don't drift toward maturity. You don't drift toward Christ-likeness. If you've been here for the last five or six years, you've heard me use this illustration probably a dozen times. Go to the beach, you set down your umbrella, your tent, or whatever, and what makes every mother or father of young kids so anxious? You go out in the water, and there's the tide, right, and it's pulling one way. I remember as a kid, you'd get in the water, and you'd just be playing and having a big time with your friends, and then you'd look out back at the shore, you're like, where's my family? Right? As you drifted, and all of a sudden you look way down there, like a half mile down the shore, you see the umbrella. What happened? I, I, I wasn't swimming this way. I was just playing, not paying attention, being inattentive, and I drifted. The tide pulled me that way. Well, it happens that way for churches. And the tide only pulls in one direction. We don't drift toward faithfulness. We drift away from faithfulness. Friends, we must persevere in the things most surely believed among us. We must hold fast to the good deposit. We must maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We must actively pursue harmony with one another. And we must make our love to abound still more and more. We as a church can't rest on our laurels. We can't coast. We can't in pride think 
it'll just always be this way. We just have to keep doing us. In other words, we must strive and work and labor to maintain every inch that has been gained by God's grace, and we must go on further still. We must go from strength to strength as a church in the power that God supplies. But brothers and sisters, especially members of Emmanuel, please hear me on this. The good things in this church are precious gifts from God. And they can be lost. They can be forfeit. May God help us to maintain them in humble dependence upon the Lord. Antidote number six, just two more now and then we'll be done. Antidote number six, we must never place inordinate confidence in one leader or a group of leaders. We must never place inordinate confidence in one leader or a group of leaders in this church or outside this church. We must never allow this church to fall prey to a cult of personality. We must never expect of our elders that, that which we may expect only from Christ. We must recognize that the best of men are men at best. All men have feet of clay. And no matter how thoughtful and careful our elder track is, and it should be thoughtful and careful, these men can never be our saviors. Furthermore, we must remember God has chosen to place in leadership in his churches weak men, sinful men, men who are made of the same stuff as everyone else. God did not choose to create a separate race or a separate genus of men to be his ministers. He has chosen men from among the ordinary ranks of sinful humanity to lead his churches. And one of the things we, the elders of this church, would beg of you to realize is that we, like you, are weak and sinful people. We have bad days. We have besetting sins. We have glaring blind spots. We do not have perfect marriages. We do not have perfect children. We often don't know what is right or best. We make mistakes. We fall short. None of us can be your savior. Churches go terribly wrong when they start investing pride in their leaders. There's no one like pastor so-and-so. As long as we got him on the team, we'll be just fine. No, friends, one way to fight spiritual pride in the church is to recognize the limitations of our leaders. To recognize they are all vulnerable. They all have weaknesses. And this should lead us to humbly pray for them, to love and know and befriend them, to honor them for their work's sake, certainly, but never to flatter them or to provide them with the kind of adulation that will only provoke pride in them. And never to locate within them that which can only be located in Christ. The seventh antidote to spiritual pride, or seven of the antidotes to spiritual pride, many more we can name. We should associate with other churches and just celebrate the work of God in them. We should associate with other churches and should celebrate the work of God in them. Uh, friends, sadly, um, this is not in my notes, but it has been the testimony of too many churches who embrace our theology uh, that they sort of sever themselves from the larger body of Christ. And they become divisive, and they become tribal, and separationist in their instincts, and they isolate from what they regard as less pure expressions 
of New Testament Christianity. I've been kind of adjacent to that world some in my past. It's a terrible place to be. You call it a kind of reformed fundamentalism. I think it dishonors God. Friends, I don't want to be a part of a church that looks down its nose at other churches. I don't want to be a part of a church that is perpetually suspicious of other churches or is competitive with other churches or doesn't know how to celebrate the work of God in other churches. We must never withdraw from Christ's true churches. I think I can defend that from the Bible. We must never withdraw from Christ's true churches. I am not talking about every building or gathering or 501c3 that calls itself a church. I'm talking about Christ's true churches. We must associate with them. We must pray for them. We must promote their good and their flourishing. We must stand with them. Spiritual pride will make us view ourselves as superior to other churches, and it will move us toward tribalism and a party spirit, and it will lead us to a despicable kind of isolationism and separationism from the wider body of Christ. OPC syndrome, only perfect church syndrome, is deadly to a church. Brothers and sisters, let's commit that we will never give in to it. Sorry, looking askance always at brothers and sisters around us. This doesn't mean you can't advocate for our principles in the wider evangelical world. It can't be that you can't have uh, resources put towards seeing churches become more healthy. I'm all about that. But friends, we must stand with our brothers and sisters in other churches. However dysfunctional they may be, look at us. We're a dysfunctional church. We're an imperfect church. We're all looking to the same Savior to help us and to build us up. We're looking to the same Bible. We may not withdraw from Christ's true churches. In closing, let me say this. I said I preached uh, this sermon uh, out of a pastoral burden. I say it again, though, this is not because I think this church has become gripped by spiritual pride. I don't think that at all. Uh, It's because I've seen it. I know spiritual pride is always at our shoulder. I know it's always knocking at the door wanting to come in. And friends, if it does, it will ruin everything. I can say for my wife and me, these have been the best years of our lives, being in this church. God has created, I don't think I'm being presumptuous when I say this, something sweet and something precious about the fellowship of this church body. Well, we should continue always in a posture of humble gratitude to God for every good gift He gives us. I should never think, we really earned this. Look what our hand has made. Look how the vision of the elders really did create something special here. Look what our tithe dollars have done. No, brothers and sisters, we have experienced nothing other than the unmerited goodness and favor and blessing and mercy of God. And we must commit to guard it. We must forsake and resist spiritual pride. We must pursue a posture of humble dependence on God. We must be more aware of our weaknesses and our failings and our need. And we must not seek in prayer meetings and in our private worship at home and the conducts of our worship gatherings to seek God and ask, please, Lord, thus far you've been with us. Would you go with us into the future? 
May you protect and preserve every good thing that's been created here by your spirit. And may you enlarge it. May you make us more like Christ. More like the vision of the New Testament church that's held out to us in the Bible. Brothers and sisters, as we approach a new year, I ask you, I encourage you, I invite you. Pray to God and invite and ask his blessing on this congregation. That we might not give in to any kind of spiritual pride in the days ahead. But might continue in a posture of humility. A posture of lowliness, a posture of dependence on God, a posture of gratitude toward Him for every gift. May we treasure Christ more in the year ahead. And may all that we have in Him, all we have in the gospel, give to us the right posture before Him as a church. That we are needy sinners redeemed by the grace of God. We have been the beneficiaries of nothing but His kindness and His unmerited favor. And may He continue to give it to us in the years ahead. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for every blessing that your spirit supplies to your churches. We thank you for how you have sustained this particular church. Uh, We have been built on the precious kindnesses and mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The work of this church is the work of the Lord, of no individual member or group of members. Uh, Father, we confess any vestige of spiritual pride in us. We pray that you would forgive us and that we would forsake spiritual pride. We pray, Father, that we would be always grateful for what it is you are pleased to do among your people. And we pray, Father, that as you work your grace in us, we would be eager to steward and preserve that grace. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would give us a low view of ourselves and a high view of your grace, and a high view of your glory, and that that would move us to a posture of humility and an eagerness to maintain and preserve and steward everything that is good, every gift that you give to this body. But we pray for your help into a long and fruitful future. We pray that as you have been with us, you would go with us into 2024 and beyond. We pray, Father, as you have helped us and sustained us, that we would be sustained into the years ahead. We pray that it would be true of many here that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will hear the gospel preached faithfully in this particular church, that many of them will be baptized here, Uh, that this would be for decades into the future a bright evangelical witness in this community, showing forth the power of the grace of God, the power of our Savior, the power of the gospel. Do this, we pray. We pray in faith that you can do it. We ask that you will do it. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.